This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. You're listening to 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the show on this very chilly Monday morning. I hope that you're keeping warm wherever it is that you are. And uh, I hope that we'll be able to heat things up a bit with our conversation today. I'm very excited to have a very special guest in studio. You will know him from his work in uh, social justice activism around the country, whether it's on the issues of law or education or AIDS or state capture or a variety of other things. Uh, so we're going and we're going to be in conversation with him uh, for around the next 50 minutes, 40 minutes on the show today. Uh, his name is Mark Hayward and he is formerly the director of Section 27, also involved with the Treatment Action Campaign and a variety of other organizations. So we're going to be chatting to him, finding out about his background as well as what he thinks around what's going on currently because we are still in a very interesting state of flux in the country at the moment. Uh, if you want to be part of the conversation, please, you can telegram us, 061-895-1019, SMS us, 34519. You can tweet us at FM or uh, even email us on air at chaifm.com, and we'll be very happy to take any of your questions. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be speaking to Mark Hayward. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 Chai FM, I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue, Blue, New Blue Review. Welcome back to the show. We are in conversation today with Mark Hayward, formerly of Section 27. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us. Good morning and thank you for having me. Uh, I want to get into your background for a start. I actually have to say that uh, before I started reading your book, by the way, Mark has just released two years ago, uh, a book about his life and his work called Get Up, Stand Up. And if you want to understand some of the... Um, the basics to South African politics in the last few years. It's an, an excellent read. Uh, but I actually didn't realize that you weren't originally from South Africa. So prolific have you been in our politics, uh, in, in the last few years. And I'm, I'm always interested in, in how people choose what they, what they decide to fight for. Uh, and your background initially was, uh, socialist activism in the UK. And eventually you found your, your, your way here. So how did you end up choosing South Africa over, I don't know, punching up Maggie Thatcher in the eighties? <laughs> well, I, I've just hit my, I'm about to hit my 30th anniversary or 30 years in, in South Africa, uh, the last 30 years. But before, uh, I came back to South Africa in 1989, uh, I first came to South Africa in 1977. My parents were, uh, stationed in Khabarone in Botswana. Uh, I was a schoolboy. Um, I was the child of two English expatriates and sent backwards and forwards from Botswana and before that, uh, Ghana to a school in York in England. Uh, and by a combination of circumstances, partly growing up in different Afri independent African countries, uh, partly through my love and passion for literature and the way I read literature, which always directs me towards issues of justice, whether it's Shakespeare or George Orwell or African literature. I don't think you can, you, you can enjoy literature without thinking about the fundamental issues of our time and of all times ab about justice and injustice. But when I arrived in Southern Africa in 1977, uh, you know, it was a, a tumultuous time in South Africa. I was particularly moved by the murder of Steve Biko that year. And that really just began a journey of me as a young uh, white English kid at that time into the politics of 
freedom and the politics of equality. And I, I backwards and forwards, as I said, between school and then between university in South Africa. And eventually I made a decision to come back in 1989 to participate in the, the what became the last years of the struggle for our our democracy. I had no idea when I jumped on a plane in uh, London in October 1989 and went via Athens to try to uh, shake off anybody who was monitoring me and arrived here pretending to be a, uh, somebody on holiday that what, would, what I thought would be three months would become 30 years and a lifetime of investment. But in a short potted way, that's how we end up sitting talking to each other. It's amazing how, how things uh, changed. Uh, I suppose one of the things you would have been most famous for in a South African context is, is your fight on the AIDS issue. And I think given you know, South African politics moves so quickly that sometimes you forget how much of an issue that was such a short time ago. But when I read what's going on with AIDS in South Africa and worldwide, it, it seems to me to be uneven. Uh, it's gone off the headlines, but still there is an, is an issue, even if there seems to be progress. Where would you say we are with that particular issue? Is this a war that can be won? Well, it, it's more than, than there is an issue. In fact, last week uh, in a shower in KZN, a new report was released by the global body uh, that is responsible for HIV, known as UNAIDS, to show that actually our gains against HIV are stalling and in some instances are actually now threatened and are, and are now going backwards. So if you take South Africa, for example, it's gone out of the news, but we're still the country with the highest rate of new HIV infections in any year or any any day. We, we I haven't looked at the latest statistics, but we're still talking in the region probably of 250,000 new infections per annum. You know, that's almost more in South Africa than in the rest of the world put together. We, we are still the epicenter of the HIV epidemic. Uh, and HIV is a virus. The virus causes the, the depletion and the destruction of the immune system, eventually causes disease, what we call acquired immune deficiency syndrome. And, and people, if they don't have treatment, die of AIDS. And today in South Africa... Tens of thousands of people still die of AIDS and still die of tuberculosis, which is the most common infection uh, associated with HIV and AIDS. So, you know, Benji, we're not out of the woods. Uh, I wish that we had been able to maintain the same level of attention and commitment to HIV as we managed to achieve a decade ago, because it's not a problem that's going to go away on its own. It's only going to be a problem that goes away through the efforts of government, of civil society, of faith-based organizations to ensure that people protect themselves from HIV and that when a person has got HIV, which is now not a curable, but it is a treatable condition, that they get onto, on, onto treatment. Mm. Yeah, it absolutely is... Uh it's interesting that you that you say that because it, when I read some of that report, uh, the global report, they're still talking around sort of categories of people who are at risk, right? There's still the same language around gay men and people who are drug users and all this kind of stuff. And the report seems to skip over what seems to still be that epicenter, which is, you know, poor black people in rural areas. Young women um, in particular with a very, very high rate risk of infection, yeah. And it's, and it's almost as though those two uh, groups are not being – it's not even – 
the one group is actually doing better and the other group is just going completely off the wayside. Uh, that, that, that's right. That's, that's where the epidemic is. And I ask myself and, you know, I'm, I'm a critic of our response to HIV. I've always been at the heart of it, but I ask myself, where is the media? Where is the, you know, the, the, the messaging? How are we helping people to recognize their own, their own risk? It's not happening, mm. uh, at the moment. And, you know, it has a tremendous social cost because antiretroviral treatment, which is what treats HIV infection, is much cheaper than it was 20 years ago. But when you have seven and a half million people needing antiretroviral treatment, it's a big cost. It, yes. it runs into billions per year, and it's a big strain on our health system because our health system has to provide medicines for daily consumption to seven and a half million people a day uh, in order that those people can stay healthy and that they can stay alive. So as the old Minister of Health, Dr. Mozzoledi, often used to say, you've got to turn the tap off at some point. You've got to turn the tap of new infections off mm -hmm. so that you can manage properly the people who are living with HIV already. We're not turning the tap off. Oh, indeed. Uh, we're talking to Mark Hayward today on 101.9 KFM. If you want to ask any questions, 0618951019. That's the telegram number, SMS 34519. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back just after this. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. 101.9 KFM. We're talking today to Mark Hayward on the New Blue Review, a uh, very prominent social justice activist in South Africa. Mark, just before the break, we were talking about AIDS and some of uh, the economics of it and our, our health system. In your book, perhaps one of the most harrowing aspects is your some of your own personal engagements. And by personal, I mean not what you saw, what you had to go through with our, our public health mm -hmm. system and, uh, uh, you know, some of the losses that you sustained. And I'm not really sure even how a person comes back from, from some of that. But it, it it's interesting because you talk about the strain on the health system. And, of course, we're having this big debate at the moment with an NHI. Um, so basically the government is saying we just don't have enough money. And I'm interested from your perspective, is that is that the case? I mean, obviously you always need more money for public health. But but is it the only issue that's, that's causing our health system to, to malfunction? No, I would say, and I'll deal with each piece if, if that's okay with mm. you. I mean, I, I would identify three issues. There's the money issue. There's the management issue, and there's the corruption issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and the money issue, actually, we spend m as much money on our health system overall as a mi middle income, more as a middle income country. We spend something like 8.5% of GDP, which is a lot of money. I mean, it's, it now totals something like four, 450 billion rand a year, but we don't spend that money equally. So we spend a huge amount of money, probably people like you and me, on our private health care, mm -hmm. which is seven. We make up 17 percent of the population. We collectively spend as much money on our health as is spent on the other 83 percent. So there's a complete misallocation of resources. Uh, we need more money in public health. We need more regulation of private health to make sure that the people who use private health get value for money. Mm -hmm. We think that we get value for money. We often do, but sometimes we mistake the bells and whistles of the private hospital and so on with quality of actual care that you, you receive in there. We need to find a way gently but purposefully 
to meld those two systems together in a way that advantages everybody and disadvantages nobody. Mm -hmm. And that's why where there's a lot of fear. So when you hear this word national health insurance, everybody's backs goes up. And particularly, again, people like you and me, the, you know, the communities that we come from, which are more affluent. Uh, and, you know, we have to understand... I think that it is a legitimate objective to try. In fact, it's not just a legitimate, it's a constitutional duty on the government to try to ensure quality care for all South Africans and particularly for those who are poorer, who by virtue of being poor are more prone to disease and, and, and to illness. Come back to that if you, if you wish. But I think that the government is right to want to introduce what it calls national health insurance, but I think they've bungled it in the way that they've, they, they've gone about it, and it's ill-conceived in certain fundamental respects. The second thing is that there's massive corruption in the health system, both in public and private. We did research 2012. We calculated in 2012 that there was about 20 billion rand a year being stolen out of the healthcare system. That was, what, six years ago, uh, seven years ago. Um, and then I think possibly our biggest crisis is a health system is very complex. To manage a big public hospital, to manage a clinic, to manage supply of medicines, to ensure that you have a proper supply of doctors and nurses and everything else requires well-trained, clever uh, people. We have lost a lot of those people, particularly out of the public health care system. The public health care system has a crisis of management. And with a crisis of management, you can't do anything properly. So it's a big, big challenge, but we've got to get it right. Mm. I mean, it, it's interesting, uh, you know, the, the NHI debate, you're right. It does cause all sorts of fear. And people who I know who are doctors in both the, the, the government and private sector are very concerned about how this might affect them and their ability, uh, ability to practice. Um, we're not producing enough doctors as it is. We're losing people. Uh, so how do you manage that, that fear? I mean, there's, there's a lot of people who say, look, we need to go the other way, you know. Uh, we need to try and privatize aspects of the, of the, of the, of the public health sector to try and make it more efficient. I'm sure as a sort of ex-socialist, that would definitely not be something that you're, uh, you're, you're gonna, uh, contend with. But, but it definitely, uh, it's definitely like the land issue and, and a couple of others. It's one of those points where, where South Africans don't just get their backs up, but they, they, in their corners and they don't want to move an inch. Yeah, and and and, that, and that's what worries me because by getting into our corners, we're not helping ourselves, and we're not helping the the country ultimately. Um, I, I think we have to start to find ways to find each other. I think we have to start to begin to have debates that are informed by evidence, but also informed by empathy and by a sense of solidarity between us as human beings. If we're going to resolve. Uh, re resolve these, these these issues, and health is a case in point. You know, I I personally believe that that as I said, melding these two systems better would benefit private practice. Mm -hmm. uh, th there's a crisis of, of of private practice as well. It it could create tens of thousands of more people who are can, you know can access private healthcare services. So it could take away some of the insecurity. Of, of, of private practice. Um, I don't think anybody, and, and, but then I think, you know, what we've lost, Benji, I think in the country is, is a shared vision and, and commitment to this idea of social justice. You know, we all talk about 
Nelson Mandela and of course last week 67 minutes and Nelson Mandela slips off everybody's lips with the greatest of ease but I don't think that we, we I think whilst we keep him alive on our lips I think we've lost him in our hearts mm-hmm. and I think that we should be thinking each one of us what can we do because we will be better together taking the hatred the the selfishness etc out of our lives than proceeding down the path which we're going at the moment i'm sorry that's a very general answer mm-hmm. in a sense but i but i think we have to look at our souls uh, uh and then think about what we're going to do about these big issues like health and basic education and land and and so on so do you think that there are models out there that this could work you know because I, I you know that 400 billion is is a lot um and, and you, you do kind of feel like it should be able to cover uh the country but you don't want to uh you know reduce what whatever you know access is it do, do you think there is a way to bring such a, a big gap together yes there is there are models in other countries that that have worked that have brought public and private together so there's no, there's no question it's just the way the manner mm-hmm. in which it is introduced and the framework with which it is done so one of the things and i'm a critic you know today i'm talking to you as if i'm a I'm sounding like a, a praise singer for national health insurance. If you speak to Minister Mo, ex-Minister Mozzoletti, he'll tell, tell you that I'm one of the worst critics of what they've put on the table of national health insurance, and I am, because what I've said to them is the first thing that you have to do is you have to improve the quality of the public health care service. Mm-hmm. That's You have to fix your medicine supplies, you have to clean the hospitals, you have to get the right people in there, and then... When you start to create a more equal platform between public and private, it will be easier to look at how do you put them, put them together. But look, the way we're going at the moment is not sustainable for private or for public. Mm-hmm. It's heading for a crash. Right. We need to stop it crashing. Okay. Interesting, interesting. I, w- I want to move on from health to, to your other sort of famous uh, no, not other. One of your other famous cases, which is the issue of education, you know, the, the, the issue of kids dying in to- toilets mm-hmm. and the textbook saga and all that kind of thing. And, and also look at it from the, the legal aspect. Uh, there's a cottage industry in South Africa in the last 10 years of, of lawfare organizations, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> where there's political parties or think tanks or, or whatever, pe- people taking the government and or other parties to court for, for societal gain. Where you guys have been innovative, I think, is that you tended to meld that with a, a sort of call to, for people to get on the streets mm. and, and a sort of public, a public activism uh, aspect at the same time. And I'm interested to hear from you about the strategy behind that because a lot of people are dismissive of protests and of public action. You know, what difference does it make getting out on, onto the street? And I'm wondering for you guys, is that something that makes a difference in the courtroom or is it – Something else that you, you're trying to make society more societal by, by bringing these, these issues into the, into the public sphere? That's a big question. <laughs> First of all, let me say you'd far rather have lawfare than warfare. Right. And we should all be grateful for our constitution because without the constitution and the courts as a way of settling these very bitter disputes sometimes, then there's a real danger that as a country we would fa- fall into warfare. And we must never forget that. That's why we have to keep our constitution uh, alive. We're a very fractured, we're a very volatile society, and people should not think 
that civil wars and so on are something that happens in other parts of the world but can never happen mm. to us. Places like Syria probably also thought that way once, and now they caught up in a horrible civil war. We've got to prevent that from happening. You know, our approach, and, and, and flowing from that, so our approach has always been to put the Constitution at the heart of everything. The Constitution is a political contract as much as it's a legal contract. The Constitution offers the promise to everybody of quality education systems, of quality healthcare systems. It's a promise. It's a roadmap. It doesn't say you can get there. And the reason why we mobilize people on the streets behind things in the Constitution is because if you don't know about the Constitution, how can you put pressure on the government, for example, to make sure that the government follows the constitutional dictate when it comes to the fact that it must be putting resources into schools rather than into banquets or the army or paying off foreign debt. I mean, these are complex issues, but, but you know, people have a right to say, well, education is a key to my child's future. Education is going to get my child out of the hole that I've lived in for all my life. Mm -hmm. So at this moment in time, in 2019, my little boy or girl shouldn't be going to a school where there's no dignity in the toilet, where there's a danger they're going to fall to the bottom of the toilet or there's snakes in the toilet or, or it's a pit toilet or whatever. You know, my philosophy, Benji, is that all progress throughout the whole of human history has come from organized people mm -hmm. when they get up and say, we can't tolerate slavery anymore. We can't tolerate colonialism anymore. We can't tolerate racism anymore. We, we, we stand for human rights. We stand for equality. We stand for peace. That will never change. And that is the thinking that lies behind organizations that come from what we call civil society, which are really just, are just companies that work not for profit, but to try to organize citizens' power and voices for good. Talking to Mark Hayward today. If you want to ask him any questions, you can telegram us 0618951019 or SMS us on 34519. Well, I want to come back to what you said earlier about South Africans having lost their sort of a little bit of a national identity or a national vision uh, for itself. You, you're, you're quite... Uh, um, you, you take a bit of a, a shot at some of the people perhaps to further left to you on the spectrum for, for not kind of getting in on the, on, on the national agenda. Uh, and, and I'm interested in that take, but I, I also wonder about some of the new groups that have emerged that maybe are not strictly part of that classic left tradition, right? Uh, I'm thinking about our, some of our campus activists or whatever who are, who are mobilizing a, a progressive rhetoric for mm -hmm. sure, but it also, seems to become clouded in race-laden stuff. It's, it's almost quite tribalistic sometimes when, when it, it, it gets off the ground. And I just wonder, in a country as diverse as ours and as, with as many corners as we have, are you concerned that, that the ability for South Africans to get together, to get things done, is also being affected by that new kind of, of thinking around uh, identi identity and what it means to be a South African? That's a complex question. Um, I think it scares me how much hate there is in our societies at the moment. It scares me how social media has become a way of propagating hate and propagating misinformation that is used to scare people. 
into positions uh, in order to get them to mobilize against other people. Um, and we have to, I believe we have to build a narrative that counters that, that's, that is based upon social justice and equality and non-racialism. Uh, you know, Johnny Clegg died last week. Johnny Clegg was, you know, the embodiment of that type of, of narrative as a white person, as a non, non-racial, you know, anti-racist. Um, I, I, I welcome, Many of these new movements, the Fees Must Fall movement was, was a very important development in our country. And to begin with, if you think to the first year of the Fees Must Fall movement, I think everybody was was excited by it because what characterized it was non-racism, was non-violence, was, un you know, unity of students, was, was non-sexism. Mm -hmm. And then something happened. Uh, and what a lot of people say is that the political parties spotted the movement and got involved, and then people became polarized even within that movement. But let me say something, Benji, about race. There's two white people talking to each other. <laughs> uh, you know, we can never underestimate as white people the harm that has been caused by racism in our country and across our continent, or the hurt. Uh, or think that it will go away quickly, or think that in 1994, when we had democracy, that we should just, everybody should just move on. Right. Uh, the land is an issue, that people were deprived of land and remain deprived of land. Wealth is an issue. 80% of black people in our country have no wealth at all, no wealth, no inherited wealth, no nothing. 80% of people think think about that. So, you know, we have to find ways to engage issues of race, of our race, of our culpability, to be quite honest, not to say, okay, we paralyze now, there's nothing that we can, we can do, but there has to be a, a deference in discussions. And I believe that there has to be a willingness to, to give mm -hmm. a little bit uh, uh, as well. And I think we're losing our way. You know, I, I, I think on all fronts, we're losing our way in that debate, which is why, again, I feel so strongly about organizations like the Ahmad Kathrada Foundation that are trying to build anti-racism networks and people who are trying to revive traditions of what was called non-racialism, which is people of all races working together, making sacrifices together for a better vision. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're talking today to uh, Mark Hayward, of, uh, formerly of Section 27. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, uh, we'll be chatting again. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9. I'm talking today to Mark Hayward. Uh, he, he's involved also, he's the activist activist. You, you, you could call him that, uh, doing all sorts of, of work in our country. Uh, if you want to ask any questions, 0618951019. That's on Telegram. You can also SMS us on 34519. And a reminder that the Jewish Community Survey of South Africa will be closing, uh, this week on, uh, Thursday, the 25th of July. A uh, very important survey. It only happens every, 10 to 15 years. So uh, this is your last chance to participate and have your say. You can go to www.jcssa2019.co.za. That's jcssa2019.co.za to sign up or you can check out their Facebook page. Uh, so I would definitely encourage everyone to do that. Mark, just before the break, so we were talking about uh, South Africans, white people engaging a, a, a sense of 
of non-racialism. I haven't been in South Africa that long, you know, I'm only 33, so uh, <laughs> uh, not quite born free, but school free. <laughs> okay. But but I don't think that I've ever seen South Africans quite so despondent and quite so mired, not really sure what to do uh, as as the next step. I, I saw that Section 27 and the SACP and a bunch of other groups were getting together to, to sort of uh, launch a, a new front, but uh, South Africans seem immobilized at the moment. They don't know what... Uh, what's going on. And I'm interested in, in, in your take about where we are and, and, and what it is that we need to be doing. Yeah, um, I do think you're right that there's a lot of despondency. Um, and that's perhaps we can come back to that in a few minutes. Why and what we should be doing about it. Uh, sometimes I feel despondent, I must say. But I also think that I deal with my own despondency by reminding myself just how beautiful and rich our country is in many respects, in its people, in its cultures, in its climate, in its geography, uh, in its history, in its possibility. And people shouldn't lose sight of that uh, because you're not going to find it in many other countries in the world, to be quite honest with you. You know, as I said, I grew up in England, a lot of my life schooled in England. I wouldn't want to go back to that gray, slow moving country. Uh, really, I wouldn't, whatever the challenges, uh, exist in this country. Um, you know, we are in a difficult situation at the moment. We fought, I say we, me and others, particularly in 2017, to have Jacob Zuma removed and to expose what we now call state capture and the levels of corruption. And I think that people's power in 2017, when we were mobilized, gave the ANC the oomph, if you like, to get rid of Jacob Zuma, however narrow the margin uh, uh, was. Uh, but it was that there was a revolt in 2017. There were marches, there were court cases, you know, we were on the streets. And I think we we restored a, a strong voice that said there must be accountability, there must be good governance, there must be anti-corruption. Then in 2018, everybody went to sleep again uh, because Cyril Ramaphosa had become president and people found Cyril Ramaphosa much more palatable than, than uh, Jacob Zuma. Um, but the people who were protected by Jacob Zuma have a huge amount to lose, and there's a lot of them. They stand to lose billions of rand. They stand to lose proximity to places where resources can be diverted into their own pockets and their own companies. They are networked to international criminal networks and in some cases even possibly to foreign governments uh, who are where there's a new geopolitics. You know, what is the role of the Russian government, for example, of Vladimir Putin and people? You know, they have an interest in South Africa building new nuclear power plants. So it's a high-stakes game. That's what I can tell you. And we're seeing what we now call a fight back against the attempts to restore democracy. I don't think it'll win. But you can't say for certain it'll lose. And so that's why it depends upon people getting on the streets, indicating where they stand. Uh, you know, changing behaviors uh, to show that this country is capable of empathy and solidarity with people who are poor and people who are marginalized. Because if, for example, 
the inequality we have in South Africa just keeps on deepening, then don't be surprised when the people on the on the hard end of inequality end up supporting populist parties that say we must tear up the constitution and we must attack people's wealth and so on and so on. Don't be surprised. You'll be able to trace it back to your behavior, mm-hmm. my behavior, your behavior. So again, my message is, you know, think about these things, but think about them not in a negative way. Think about them in a, in a, in a positive way. I, I, other places in the world, we've got new challenges with things like climate change coming down the line. Um, this is as good a place as any to to try to build decency in in the world at this moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested in your comment about England, right? And going back to some of your arguments uh, with with people more on the on the on the far left, right? You you, you left that grouping. In the, in the early 90s because you felt like there was more to be achieved in, in, in the social justice framework. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think arguably your career in South Africa has shown that you were right. But what's interesting for me is that if you go back and look at England, uh, your, that group, the militant that you were part of, uh, that in effect is the group that's taken over the Labour Party. I mean, there, there was some controversy, in fact, about militant coming back in. And, and I'm interested in your perspective. Uh, do you think that uh, Corbyn and, and, and Co is that a good thing for the Labour Party? Is that something that's that's going to be useful for for changing things in Britain? I don't know how much you you still follow that. You know, just I'm allowed to historical. disagree with you, aren't I? <laughs> Please, by all means. That's the idea. Uh, look, I don't follow English British politics intricately, um, but I do believe that we need party political leaders now who will articulate the importance of equality and social justice and narrowing inequality. I think that Jeremy Corbyn is often misrepresented in the media. I don't believe that Jeremy Corbyn is, for example, what on what we would call the far left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I certainly don't think that the militant tendency of which I was part for quite a number of years in the 1980s when I was at university and then after university, which advocated, you know, that we must... We nationalize all of industry and build uh, workers' power. And that's just not possible. I, I don't believe, you know, the left has been part of rallying behind Jeremy Corbyn. But frankly, Benji, we need a fresh voice. Uh, so if I was in Britain at the moment, I would be a Labour Party member, uh, although I would, just like I do here, I would also be independent and active. In fact, let me take that back. I'm not sure whether I'd be a Labour Party member. I would certainly be sympathetic, but I would also be building a civil society like I'm building here to try to push political parties down the path of social justice and reasonableness. You know, I'm not an ANC member. I was an ANC member for a long time. I'm not an ANC member anymore. Uh, I build civil society particularly at this moment to push the ANC and to push Cyril Ramaphosa as the president towards our constitution and our constitutional value, values. So I don't know if that gives you a, gives you an answer. Uh, yeah, um, it does. Thank you. I, I appreciate it's, it's always <laughs> nice to have someone who was uh, involved uh, in, 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 in that aspect of, you know, because what do we know about British politics? So uh, it's, it's nice to have that perspective. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back just after this. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. Back with you on 101.9 Chai FM. Mark, we have an SMS in uh, for you. Someone wanting to know, 
What do you feel about making preschool education compulsory for all, at least from age two? Uh, this is imperative, I feel, uh, but Angie does nothing. This is from Jenny. Thank you so much, Jenny, for sending that in. I, I, I probably agree. <laughs> you know, we know the importance of what we call early childhood development. We know how important the foundation phase is for children's uh, progress through the educational system. Uh, so I, I, I think that's right. Um, and what I would be doing is looking at how can we make legal arguments to try to make sure that education is compulsory, uh, at that age and how to make sure that the resources are made available for that. And part of that involves showing the benefits that you would get. You know, our early, our primary school and early childhood uh, education, early childhood development is a mess. At the moment, and that's borne out by these terrible statistics that were released last year or the year before that show that by, uh, I've forgotten which it is, grade eight or something, you know, 75% of children in our public school can't read for meaning. You know, they can read, but they can't read for meaning. That's, that's a, an admission of, of failure of the education system. So yes, good idea. Thank you very much for that, Jenny. Uh, Mark, you recently left Section 27. You had uh, helped to establish it, and then uh, you, you sort of um, moved on, uh, which is great, by the way. I think uh, as in terms of uh, not because we weren't doing good work, but I think often in the NGO sector we find that people stay maybe much longer. Yeah. They preach democracy and then stick around forever, yeah. right? <laughs> That's right. Um, so, but I'm interested in what your next move is. I mean, you, you talk about your love of literature. Um, it's several times in the book you lament a PhD that you left behind 30 yeah. years ago. What, what's next for you? Where, where are you going after this? You, you've read my book very well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I do love literature very much. And in a better world, I would teach African literature and immerse myself in the parts of English literature that I love, including Shakespeare and so on. Uh, instead, I have to snatch my hours with literature at sort of four o'clock in the morning uh, for an hour. Um, you know, I'm going to stay in social justice. I have, in fact, just accepted and started a new position as the editor of a part of the Daily Maverick that will focus on civil society. Uh, we're going to call it Maverick Citizen, and we're going to use it to report on the type of organizations that we've been discussing and the issues that they deal with and to show, you know, to shine a light on the many places where civil society plays such a critical role in keeping our society together. And people don't realize that civil society works on tens of thousands of fronts on a daily basis. You know, I was driving here listening to another radio station, somebody from the Salvation Army talking about slavery and I was thinking, gosh, how interesting to listen and how good it is to know that there are actually people who are working on slavery in, in, in South Africa. In 2019. In 2019. <laughs> so, and, and people don't realize just how deep and how diverse this is. So I think civil society plays as an important a role in society generally as business or government. I would like it to be treated with equal seriousness. Mm-hmm. So and and so that's what and and so this is what uh, a similar kind of a ground up uh, kind of style. It's yeah. There are a couple of other online news uh, publications like Ground Up that you've mentioned, like New Frame, uh, which listeners might want to have a look at. 
Yes, but no, because I want to frame this much more politically. I want to frame, join the dots between different civil society organizations. I want it. I don't just want to tell the tales of poor people, which are important, but I want people to see how we can organize to overcome that poverty and, and, and inequality. So, so instead of reportage, a more opinionist, which exactly what the demographic yeah, does. Kind a, of a part opinionist. There will be reportage because I do want to bring the news out, but, mm-hmm. the, but also opinion, also debate. Analysis. Analysis, profiles of, of the many people who work in this, in, in, in this space. Look, we are at the moment we're aiming to launch it on the 1st of September. We're doing some very hard thinking at the moment. We haven't yet got the concept completely refined. And even when we launch it, we'll continue, I'd imagine, to fiddle with it. Uh, but that's the way I'm going. But I will also continue to be active in the health space, in the social justice space. I can't give up on this type of stuff, uh, unfortunately. Oh, absolutely. Mark, very quickly before we end, if, if people are inspired by this, they, they want to make a difference, where would you say that people's time, energy, money – is, is most usefully given and how can they do it at the moment? Well, if you talk about money, most civil society organizations, including Section 27, need money desperately to keep themselves going. If you talk about time and energy, there's always work to be done supporting those organizations. But I would say people should look closer to home as they do that. You know, they should learn from those organizations. They should find out about the space. But you should ask what can be done on my street? What can be done at my at my school? What can be done in my workplace? What can be done in my church or faith to show that we are compassionate human beings and that we treat equality seriously? Mark Hayward, thank you so much for joining us on 101.9. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much to everyone. Uh, I'll put the show together to Mandy, who does the production, Vuzi, who is on the sound, and to Craig, who pushes all the big red buttons. I'll chat to you again next week.